breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be
Our scripture text is Luke 18. Verses 9 and following. Last Lord's Day we studied the parable of the persistent widow. Luke recorded the meaning of the parable before telling the story. Because persistence in prayer is one thing we're likely to be guilty of not doing. We know God doesn't answer prayers outside of his will. We talked about the magic three mentality that people get from Paul's prayer about his thorn in the flesh. Prayed three times and the Lord said, no, no, no. My grace is sufficient for you. So people have made a fetish out of that. They say, okay, I'm going to pray three times for this. And if God says, no, no. No, then I won't pray about it anymore. Um, that's not how you're to use the Bible. That was specifically with regard to Paul because he had to learn as a Pharisee that he was subject to the will of God and that even his prayer life was to be corrected and directed uh, by the power of God's grace and not his own will concerning things. In this account of the um, that Luke records for us, there was a godless judge who cared nothing for God or for people, and he refused to hear the case of a certain widow whose plea for justice against her adversary went un unheeded for some time. But she kept coming. She kept petitioning the court for justice. And the judge finally conceded because she was wearing him out with all of her constant coming. That's his words, not mine. So the only reason he was willing to give her justice was to help himself. Anyway, the point of the story is that God is unlike the unjust judge. He is alert and anxious to help his people and to answer their prayers. He's not reluctant and he's not distant. And the scripture says he will answer quickly. The practical truths we learned is that God's ears are ever attentive to the cries of his people, his elect, and he has promised them justice against their adversaries. And we are often persecuted unjustly. Secondly, we learn that God promises not only to hear, but to act in this business of granting us justice from our persecutors and to do it quickly. Quickly being, in context, the quick way in which events will move at the day of the Lord when Christ comes to settle accounts. And boy, they just go click, click, click. So there'll be no second chances. There'll be no reviews, no long time hiatus given to anybody when the Lord comes. It's over when he comes. 
till Christ gets here, we, as his disciples, should, verse 1, always pray and not give up. Always pray and not give up. So Christ is looking for persistent faith in his people as they wait for his arrival. No quitting on Christ. We're to be faithful to the end. Now today's lesson is also on prayer, and indeed, I'm thankful that Luke includes this in his account because it complements the parable of the persistent widow. So last week we learned that prayer must have some tenacity to it, a never-say-die reality to it, which hopes in God through thick and thin, showing some sense of fortitude and stamina, And the study today teaches us what our mentality must be when we pray. So taking all this in terms of an overview, the widow teaches us to be persistent as we pray. The Pharisee teaches us the wrong way to pray. And the tax collector teaches us the right way to pray. So you got these three references to show us as sort of a mini-series on the whole concept of prayer. As we come to our study then today, let us ask for the Lord's enablement. Thank you, dear Lord, for your word, and we pray that you will bless it to our hearts. And we need to be people of prayer and and, uh, follow these principles that we're learning about prayer, taught by you yourself. And um, in reference to your disciples, direct teaching to them, well, we are your disciples. So we take these uh, admonitions to heart, and we pray that you will help us to be people of prayer, not to lose hope, but to be tenacious in what we desire of you, praying according to your will, that we might receive what you have for us. Bless our time together and be with our people that are away. Bring them back safely in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this brings us then you the whole idea. The widow teaches us to be persistent as we pray. The Pharisee teaches us the wrong way to pray. And the tax collector the right way to pray. And that brings us to the prologue of today's uh, study. Again, Luke, as the human author, tells us, why Jesus told this story. Verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. I like this about Luke. You don't have to guess what Jesus was up to. Luke is writing under the authority and the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And he gives us Hey, this is the reason Jesus taught this. That's a tremendous help. When we analyze the constituency of our society, it is amazing to discover that the vast majority of people fall into this category. Most people are self-confident when it comes to being righteous, and there is the tendency to look down upon, just like our text says, everybody else, as being ignorant, foolish, unlearned, and a notch or two below 
their own expertise. No one has to work himself into this state of mind. People have been told in our society to believe in themselves for so long that they do <laughs> believe in themselves even to the point of absurdity and folly. In witnessing, I have engaged people in conversation about God and salvation in Christ and people who have never cracked a Bible in their life People who have never gone to a gospel preaching church, not even once. They will assert their beliefs in God and salvation and heaven and hell with such confidence and assurance that you would think they had a degree from, in theology from a seminary. They are sure they are right. And they are equally sure that you are wrong. And they will hold to their opinion, no matter how much Bible you quote to them, no matter how many holes in their thinking you uncover, and no matter how much their shallow and defective views cannot be substantiated even in their own experience. Bottom line, they are the ones who are right. You are but an ignorant fool. You don't know it. Now, not all are as brazen as that. But the subtlety of their innuendos and their condescending tones cannot disguise the underlying conviction that all is well with their souls before God. And they know it, even if you don't know it. The Pharisee in Jesus' story illustrates this kind of person. Going in the temple to pray, verse 11, the Pharisee stood up. Now, there's nothing out of order about that. Standing to pray was a common posture in biblical days. And he prayed about himself. The Greek here says he prayed to himself. I'm sure he didn't know that, but that's what he was doing here's here's his prayer god i thank you that i am not like other men and then he states you know robbers evildoers adulterers or even like this tax collector so here is a person who is pleased with himself and he arrived at this inflated view of his importance, not by comparing himself with the mighty men of the faith, like Abraham, Samuel, King David, Elijah, Hezekiah, but by comparing himself with the riffraff of society. The robbers, the evildoers, King James Version says the unjust, adulterers, tax collectors who were known for being extortionists. So he was proposing a negative righteousness 
a righteousness consisting in what he was not. Okay, what was he not? Well, I'm not a mugger. I'm not unjust in my dealings. I'm not sexually immoral. I'm not a theft. A thief. Not, 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 not. Oh, yes, he does get to his positive virtues, but his list is a praise fest for his fastidious detail to things which in themselves are rather minor requirements of the law of God. Look at verse 12. I fast twice a week. There is a law in the scripture about fasting for solemn occasions or for when you're in mourning or for repenting of specific sins and wanting to get right with God. One day in particular, the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, verse 29. But here the Pharisee has turned fasting into a ritual like the mindless reciting of the Lord's Prayer that's done in many churches every Sunday morning. What else? Oh, and I give a tenth of all I get. A tenth, a tithe. So everything he acquired, not just his earnings, he tithed. Tithing was a big deal to the Pharisees of Jesus' day. On one occasion, Jesus pronounced judgment upon the Pharisees, and one of his condemnations was this. Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth, there's the tithe, you give God a tenth of your what? Mint. Rue and all other kinds of garden herbs. But, says Jesus, you neglect justice and the love of God. Now, you should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Luke 11, verse 42. So, what is he saying? Jesus is saying they substituted. Money gifts for justice and fairness in their dealings with their neighbors and for loving God in their hearts. And sadly, same kind of people are still with us today. They think they can buy God's favor by how much money they place in the offering plate. They point out, that their money gifts to the church, like this Pharisee, is proof that they are in a right relationship to God. May I say that if we are in a right relationship with God, money flows into God's work almost unnoticed by the giver. In other words, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. Christ speaks about that. There's no accounting for every penny. Certainly not the tithe of our garden herbs. 
God himself is not that fastidious. So this prayer of the Pharisee is no prayer at all. There's no petition to God. There's no confession of sin. There's no sense of humility as he addresses God. There's no supplication for mercy and for grace. There's no sense that he needs anything from God at all because in the end he sees himself as a prize catch for God. I'm not a bad person. Like these others. Actually, I, uh, I, I do a lot of good. And commendable things for God and his church. Even his thankfulness so observed. God, I thank you was a mere pretense of pride, much in the same way the rabbinical writings of old demonstrate one rabbi's instruction to his students on how to pray. Here's what he taught them. Pray every day, Blessed be thou God, that thou hast not made me a Gentile. Blessed be thou, that thou hast not made me an unlearned man. Blessed be thou that thou hast not made me a woman. Now you can figure this out. Such thankfulness or praise to God for things which God himself is creator. Think about that. Gentiles, the unlearned women. He's praying, I'm glad I'm not, not, not. These are all an insult to God. You don't thank God that you're not what he creates when it states in the scripture that he created all these things. That's an insult to God. Well, all of this, the Pharisee voice in the temple of Jerusalem near the holy place wherein God himself was believed to be present in his glory. Now contrast that to the penitent in this account. How different was the prayer of the tax collector? Well, he stood his distance. Not daring in his own mind to come close to the holy place, but to stay just inside the temple perimeter where he could still pray within the temple court. And his one-sentence prayer contains all of the essential elements of true prayer. God, have mercy on me. By the way, not a sinner, the Greek, God have mercy on me, the sinner. The sinner. As if to say, there were no other sinners in the whole world but him. 
Note the characteristics of his prayer. Firstly, it was a petition, not a recital of accomplishments. God have mercy. Not God, I thank you that I am not. When this tax collector prayed, he had something to ask God on what he asked for dealt pointedly with the sin question. Secondly, personal need is stated. Have mercy on me. This kind of me is different from the I, I, I of the Pharisee. It's not that way. The tax collector is not saying, look at me and see how great I am. He's not saying that. He's saying, God, look at me and see how needy I am of your mercy. There was no preoccupation of how he fared compared to others. I mean, in a sense, forget others. I'm in trouble, Lord, and I know it. And thirdly, his prayer evidence humility. He spoke of himself like the Pharisee had done. But when the tax collector spoke, he didn't rehearse his great achievements for God. He illustrated his failures. His failures. He confessed to God his sin. Be merciful to me, the sinner. Do you know that no prayer is worthy of the name which does not acknowledge that we do not even have the right to come before a holy God? Not in and of ourselves. We have no such right. Fourthly, the chief item the tax collector voiced to God was his need for mercy. Yeah, it's okay to pray prayers of thanksgiving to God and to praise him for his watch care over you. Yeah. His healing ministry when you are sick. His comfort during times of sorrow. But none of these things must supersede the prayer for mercy. You and I need mercy. We need grace and mercy every day. And nothing we pray about must cloud our concept that any prayer to God must acknowledge that we cannot stand before him and ask him anything unless he is firstly merciful to us. So first things first. God owes us nothing. People don't, of the world don't think that way. They think, that's why I have God. That's why I come to God. It's his job to forgive me. 
if they even acknowledge that they're sinners. Wow. And finally, this man's prayer was from the heart. From the heart. This was not something he memorized. It was not something he rehearsed a dozen times so as to get all the phraseology right. This was not something he was reading from a prayer book. You know many they called higher churches have prayer books the prayer is never spontaneous well, what's a prayer book they're prayers of people that have said prayers and they made a book out of them and so the, the particular denomination makes a prayer book and they stick it in the pews and when they pray they open up to page such and such and they read this prayer And that is their form of praying. He could not bring himself to look up towards heaven because of his deep sense of his sinfulness. He kept the thought in mind that his soul was dirty. It was corrupt. He thought how unworthy he was to ask God for anything. But though unworthy, ask he must, for where else is he going to find Peace for his soul. So he prays. What was the result? Two men went up to the temple to pray. They both went in on the same day. And at the same time, else the Pharisee could not have made a comparison between himself and the tax collector verse 12 so they had to be there together two men went to seek the approval and justification of God Almighty on their lives but only one walked away justified in God's eyes verse 14 Jesus says I tell you that this man the one he has just been describing the tax collector this man rather than the other the Pharisee went home justified before God. Think about this. The Pharisee went home feeling all right in his own eyes. He went as he had come. He felt good about himself. When he went into the temple to pray, he felt good about himself when he left the temple. But brethren, how we feel about things is not always the best indicator of reality. I may feel that all is well with my soul when it is not.
The tax collector was not at the temple to get a pat on the back from God and a feel-good benediction. He went to the temple to get right with God about his sin and to receive forgiveness and mercy. It wasn't what he thought of himself that counted, not even his correct views of his own sin. It was what God thought of him which counted and whether or not God would cleanse him of his sin and accept him in mercy. Well, he received his request. Jesus said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So what lessons do we learn here? Well, number one, the righteousness of which God approves in your lives has nothing to do with what you are not, but with what you are. I've met too many professing Christians who are of the same stripe as the Pharisee in this story, whose pride as an assumed child of God centered on what he or she was not. Well, I'm not a robber. I'm not an evildoer. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a cheating thief like this tax collector. I am not. I am not. And people of this persuasion have convinced themselves that they are Christians because they do not gamble, they do not drink, they do not smoke, they do not cuss, they do not go to movies, they do not dance, etc., 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 and the list is long and arduous. They're full of the do-nots. As though such comparisons between themselves and other sinners was the mark of their righteousness and made them better people than the rest of humanity. Now what they are is full of pride. The basic sin of all sins is pride. Killed Satan and the wicked angels of heaven. Killed Adam and Eve and all of humanity. They're full of pride. Look at verse 1. Confident of their own righteousness. But their confidence is ill-founded. Such people are highly critical of others. I'm sure you've met them. They are censorious in their assessments, censoring every, everything others do which do not comply with their list of do's and don'ts. These people are unforgiving when wrong, believing it to be their task to rub a man's face in his sin and make him suffer for what he said or what he did. They're always right in their own eyes. 
And Luke points out, verse 9, they look down on everybody else. Luke's words, not mine. They look down on everybody. If this is you this morning, it will be hard for you to see it because blindness to one's own self-righteousness goes with the territory. But you need to see it if you would be truly justified in God's sight and not just in your own sight. What are some of the clues that we need to look for? Well, when you hear a sermon preached on some particular sin problem, do you see that problem as part and parcel of your own makeup or do you exempt yourself from that truth? Stated another way, when was the last time you were truly broken in spirit over your own personal affrontery to the law of Christ? David said, a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. Psalm 51 verse 17. And in verse 2 and 3 of that same psalm, Psalm 51, David had prayed, Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions. And my sin is always before me. Wow. Do you know your own transgressions of the law of God? Are your own sins ever before your eyes? If not, then you're a Pharisee. Self-righteous? Maybe spiritually dead. Second clue. How do you relate to your brothers and sisters in Christ when they sin? Is there sympathy sympathy for their failures? Is there compassion for their chastening that comes from God? Is there understanding that temptations to sin can be so powerful at times as to catch people off guard so that they fall? I mean, Jesus put it this way. Do not judge or you too will be judged. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, oh, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Matthew 7 verse 1 and following. <laughs> Think about this. There's something ludicrous about an eye surgeon who is himself blind. The 
Yet there are people like this throughout God's kingdom. They have the answer for everyone else, but they cannot see their own great need. So if you always have an opinion, you always have a correction to make, you always have an observation to share, a suggestion for improving another brother's walk with the Lord, you're a Pharisee. You're self-righteous. And you're spiritually compromised because of that. James talks about a person that looks into the mirror of God's word. And this is the way he puts it. And immediately forgets what he saw. The word of God mirrors back God's evaluation of who and what we are. And we see it. That's why we preach the word of God. It exposes us. But then James says, what good is it to people who immediately forget what they saw? Thirdly, we learn if you can't get past the human instrument God uses to minister the truth to you, but are always dismissing the truth because of glaring inconsistencies in the speaker, you are full of self-righteousness. Paul had this position with the Corinthians. Though he was, get this, though he was their spiritual father introducing them to the gospel of Christ, when he spoke, they criticized him saying, let me read it for you. Well, his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speech amounts to nothing. Their words, not mine. 2 Corinthians 10.10. 10. Can you imagine that? He went to Corinth, a pagan city. They're worshiping idols. They're going to hell when they die. He preaches to them the gospel. They hear the gospel. The Holy Spirit blesses the preaching of the word. They're saved. And when they get saved, they get proud. And they forget what they were. For whatever reason, Paul had to defend his apostleship and his right to minister the word to the Corinthians more than to any other church which he established. His mannerisms, his appearance, his speech, his knowledge of the gospel, all of this came under close scrutiny, and when he didn't measure up, these people were ready to dismiss him and the truth that he taught. As a disciple of Christ, you should be such a friend to truth that if the devil himself were to preach it to you, you would believe it and act upon it. Now, the devil won't do that, but I'm saying if he did. If you can't get past the sin of the speaker and learn the truth that he or she teaches, then you're a self-righteous Pharisee. 
and spiritual, you're spiritually deficient. So, these are the three big clues that all is not well with your soul. Number one, God is not interested in what you are not, but rather in what you are. You may be able to articulate what you're against, but what do you do in life that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees? If you cannot get beyond their negative righteousness, you will not be justified in God's eyes, no matter how good you see yourself in your own eyes. The righteousness of which God approves is his own righteousness, which he gives freely to sinners who ask him for mercy. This is something the Pharisee in Jesus' story never did. But the tax collector asked and received. And the affirmation of Jesus was that he went home justified before God. Verse 14. You say, well, I've done that. I'm... I mean, I've asked God to be merciful to me. No, it isn't going through the motions that counts in this matter. It isn't the words, God have mercy on me. It's not that that brings God's mercy and forgiveness into our lives. We tend to make magic out of biblical formulas, like waving the magic wand, expecting God to jump too because... We chanted the correct incantation. God will not be manipulated like that. You can't bring the blessing of God into your life through trickery and deceit. The question is, did you mean it when you prayed, God have mercy on me? You say, well, I think I did, but I'm not sure. Here's how you can be sure. Now think about this. Are you trusting in God's forgiveness and cleansing to justify you? Or are you trusting in the fact that you asked for forgiveness and mercy to justify you. Slight innuendo there, but don't miss it. This is a crucial point. Because Jesus is relating to us a story about people who were, get it now, verse 9, confident in their own righteousness. To save them. King James Version states it this way. People who trusted in themselves. We preachers are sometimes guilty of giving, I think, the wrong impression about these matters when we talk about the sinner's responsibility 
to the call of the gospel. We talk of the need to repent and believe the gospel. But I try to be very careful to explain the difference between responsibility on the one hand and ability on the other hand. Say, what do you mean? Well, if your boss at work were to tell you that by the end of the day, you have to have 100 accounts processed and mailed to the shareholders, that's your responsibility. But you may protest and protest correctly, but boss, no one can process 100 accounts in a day, even when they have the fastest computer. Boss, your plea is unable to be done. Now, our plea is based on inability, right? Well, we can plead that. But God has not lost his right to command because you have lost your ability to obey. Ooh. Obedience to God's righteous law as the creator and the lawgiver is your responsibility even though you sin and fall short of the glory of God. God isn't responsible for your inability to obey. You are a lawbreaker by nature and by choice. You did that. So bottom line, any appeal made to you to repent and to believe the gospel is an appeal to your responsibility. But if you obey, if you obey, that ability to respond aright is the gift of God. And if you know that today, you will have nothing but praise to God on your lips for his mercy to you. So I ask again. Are you trusting in your decision for Jesus? To save you? Or are you trusting Jesus? That's a world of difference. It's a world of difference. And Christ put it this way himself. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the essence of the gospel that Jesus preached. And that is why the true gospel is so offensive to men. It leaves no room for boasting, no avenue for self-congratulations, no hope for a salvation achieved 
achieved by living good lives. No brownie for points for making right decisions. The Pharisee saw himself as better than others because he compared himself with other sinners. People do this all the time. Had he compared himself with God, the Creator, his pride would have been put in its place and he would have left the temple a different man. He would have joined the ranks of the children of God. But as it was, he remained a child of the devil, religious but lost. So I asked this morning, whose child are you? The so-called gospel being preached in our country, probably in Europe as well, is so based upon you have to make a decision, you have to decide, you have to choose. And then people get it in their mind. I chose God. I made the right moves. Of course, he's going to save me. I followed the rule book. And then we wonder why, after the Billy Graham crusade is all over, and people went forward and made their little statement, we wonder at why so many of them go on to live like the devil. And we wonder, well, what happened to their faith? What happened to their love for God? What happened to their hatred for sin and their repentance of sin? What happened, brethren, is they saved themselves and themselves was found wanting in the end. There was no power in the South. Just so much righteous talk. I pray that's not the case with any here today. Why am I saved? Because I did something a certain way? No, it's because God did something a certain way. And he came into our lives and he showered us with his grace and his blessings even when we were standing there like this. I hate you, God. You're not telling me what to do. I have my own life to live. And God, in effect, says, okay, go ahead and live it. Go ahead and die by it. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. You don't want the gift. You want the wages. No 
no contest. I'll take the gift anytime if God will stir my heart to take it. Our Lord, stir the hearts of people today. Help us to see the difference between standing on our own righteousness and having Christ stand in our place before your holy throne and having his blood cover our sin so that it isn't us, it never has been us, that saves ourselves. It's always God, and it will always be God in his grace. The world doesn't hear much of this anymore because the preachers are failing the people, and they're failing you, and they're failing the gospel. What's so good about telling people that they're wonderful when the Bible says no, you're bound for hell, and that's not going to be wonderful. What's going to happen if a person doesn't have a Savior? What's a Savior? Somebody that steps in. Someone that snatches us away from the destruction that awaits us. That's what a Savior does. Lord, grant us that saving grace. Open our eyes to see we need Jesus. He doesn't need us. He's going to be righteous right to the very end of eternity. But we need him. And we need his forgiveness. And we need his cleansing. I pray that you'll do that for us for the sake of his glory and our good. We pray these things. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity, number 466. Now we're going to take a 10-minute break after this hymn and then regroup for the Lord's table. If you're a believer and you um, know Christ as Savior, we, we will allow that as a testimony. But if you're not a believer... We don't invite you to stay for the second service because what does Paul say about that ordinance of bread and cup? Well, if you eat and drink of that particular elements, but you don't know the Christ that the elements represent, what you're actually eating and drinking, Paul says, you're eating and drinking judgment and damnation on yourself. It's like mocking God. Don't mock God. The scripture says, he says in his word, I, that he will, not, he will not be mocked. Number 466 in Trinity. It's in the hymnal? Yeah, we're going to do 201 in the hymnal. 201 in the hymnal. Is that better music or... Okay.
Let's pray and then uh, we'll take a 10 minute break and regather for the Lord's table. Our Father, we thank you for your grace. If any of us are saved, it's because of your grace. It's not because we were so wonderful. We were not a great catch for God or anything like that. We were vile, disobedient, rebel sinners against you and your law. We loved righteousness. We loved our sin, and we wanted nothing to do with the holiness of God. But you broke through that, nonetheless, and you granted us a mirror view from the Word of God of how we really looked, what we really are, apart from your grace. And then, wonder of wonders, you poured grace out upon us. You were merciful. 
So we thank you and praise you for that. And the ordinance to follow, the bread, your broken body, the cup, your shed blood, tells us in symbolic form what it costs God to make us clean and pure and righteous in your sight. So as we come in a few moments to that, we ask your blessing as well. Bless each one here today in Christ's name. Amen.